Welcome to another exciting episode of TP Talks, PwC's Global Transfer Pricing podcast series. I am your host, Christina Novak. I'm a principal in PwC's U.S. national tax practice. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Greg Ossie. Greg is a former principal in PwC's national tax practice who has recently retired. He is a true titan of the transfer pricing world who had an illustrious career in this dynamic field. His experience and wealth of knowledge will provide us with a unique perspective into this fascinating subject. Our discussion today will start by taking a look back We'll uncover some of the historical transformative milestones that have really reshaped transfer pricing. We'll examine the current landscape. And finally, we'll take a look forward. We'll explore some of the possibilities and challenges that lie ahead for both practitioners and taxpayers in this space. Greg, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Christina. Glad to be here and looking forward to our talk. Wonderful. Well, let's start with a look to the past. Greg, looking back over your career, what were some of the pivotal moments that you believe had a profound impact on transfer pricing and really changed transfer pricing from that point forward? Uh, I would divide the major developments over the last 40 years uh, really into two categories, um, procedural and substantive. Procedurally, uh, transfer pricing began primarily as a US tax issue raised by the IRS on audits. They were one-off tax controversies arising from, you know, the IRS examinations and some, you know, uh, litigation, uh, some large transfer pricing cases. Uh, and transfer pricing practice really changed with the adoption of annual documentation requirements, which was first in the U.S. in like the mid-1990s, and then spreading to other countries throughout the rest of the 1990s and then subsequent years. And so for multinational companies, it really became imperative to proactively develop uh, and implement global transfer pricing policies that would be accepted and could be documented across multiple jurisdictions. Uh, and at the same time, um, in order to provide sort of an alternative way of, uh, of addressing transfer pricing cases, the U.S. and then followed by other countries, introduced advanced pricing agreement procedures. It's offered an important means for multinational companies and for tax administrations to resolve these, you know, big uh, transfer pricing cases uh, through cooperative, less contentious sort of ruling process. So the APA process provided a platform for tax administrations to discuss and develop common approaches to transfer pricing issues in real time uh, and to resolve cases bilaterally and even multilaterally in some cases. What were some of the substantive developments? Well, at the same time that these procedural developments were occurring, uh, the substantive transfer pricing standards really evolved. Uh, and uh, it was spurred initially by a congressional directive in the Tax Reform Act of 1986, you know, big, uh, large uh, uh, tax legislative uh, enactment, uh, followed by the Treasury Department's Section 42 white paper issued in the late 1980s. Uh, and as a result, um, this culminated in an overhaul of the U.S. transfer pricing regulations. The comprehensive set of Section 42 regulations issued in 1994. And basically those regulations established the regulatory framework we still have in place today. 
a major feature of these regulations, which really shaped the application of transfer pricing principles in the decades since, uh, since they were adopted, was the adoption of profit-based methods, you know, particularly the comparable profits methods. Uh, this was a major development in the transfer pricing law. You know, prior to that, uh, transfer pricing had focused primarily on transactional pricing, uh, but profit-based methods came to dominate transfer pricing. You know, comparable company benchmarking is now a standard part of transfer pricing, but it was a revolutionary concept back then. You know, so revolutionary, in fact, that many other countries, including major trading partners of the United States, were religiously opposed to the comparable profits method. Uh, the U.S. Uh, IRS began to apply this method to inbound cases. You know, U.S. subsidiaries of Japanese and German-based multinationals, for example. Uh, and these other tax authorities viewed the IRS as kind of imposing a type of mandatory profit minimum or sort of required industry standard profit for U.S. subsidiaries of these foreign companies. And this produced a whole lot of tension in the international transfer pricing environment. Uh, eventually, though, an international consensus emerged. Um, and it was reflected really in the, in the set of transfer pricing guidelines issued by the OECD. Uh, in the mid-1990s, uh, and in many ways, these guidelines mirrored the framework of the U.S. transfer pricing regulations, uh, including the adoption of the arm's length principle, the basic principle, but also endorsing methods like the transactional net margin method, which really mirrored the U.S. comparable profits method. Um, and the publication of these global standards then led many countries to adopt and to begin seriously enforcing domestic law transfer pricing regulations and imposing the documentation requirements that I mentioned earlier. So this really reshaped the entire transfer pricing landscape. That is quite a bit of change that all came about in the 90s. You mentioned the annual documentation requirements, of course, the 94 regulations, which gave us, as you mentioned, the profits-based methods, including CPM, the comparable profits method, which is now one of the most commonly used transfer pricing methodologies, and also the APA program, which was really a game changer for taxpayers. How did the landscape change as a result of both of those procedural and substantive developments? Well, as I mentioned, uh, when countries around the world adopted transfer pricing requirements and set up robust transfer pricing enforcement mechanisms, multinational companies had to change their approach you know, from simply managing individual controversies as they arose to really proactively managing transfer pricing on a global basis. Uh, and at the same time, this led sort of accounting firms and some law firms to set up global networks of transfer pricing specialists across multiple countries. Um, so these firms, you know, put themselves in position to advise multinational companies on uh, the development, implementation, and documentation of transfer pricing policies across all the countries where they operated, uh, and to help them manage transfer pricing disputes when they arose, you know, to, to, to really manage them on a multi-jurisdictional basis instead of, you know, in each individual country. Um, and so dispute resolution and prevention became particularly important for multinational companies at this point. The level of scrutiny in multiple countries uh, arose dramatically. As I said, they set up a really robust transfer pricing uh, enforcement and, and examination teams um, that, that really started to look at these issues in a serious way. 
Um, and this is reflected, for example, in the U.S. competent authority statistics. The, the statistics show that for many years now, the vast majority of cases in the U.S. competent authority inventory arise from adjustments made by foreign tax authorities. So most cases are triggered by foreign transfer pricing adjustments, even though the U.S. IRS has a robust enforcement regime in place for conducting transfer pricing examinations. So this really shifted, I guess, the mindset of taxpayers to take more of this proactive approach to their transfer pricing rather than this sort of reactive approach or just dealing with their transfer pricing issues as they arose. With respect to controversy, looking back, what transfer pricing issues that were taken up by the courts do you think had the most impact on transfer pricing? So, you know, uh, it's interesting because court opinions often do not provide sort of broad guidance that can be applied to other fact patterns because they're so fact specific and dependent on the specific evidence and expert witness analysis presented in each case. But I think there's one principle that has been addressed in several court opinions over the years that I think has had a large impact on transfer pricing. And that's the realistic alternatives principle. Um, in some early cases, the, uh, the courts rejected IRS arguments based on the realistic alternatives principle. Uh, and as a reaction, uh, the IRS and the Treasury Department incorporated the principle into the transfer pricing regulations issued in 1994. And this principle is also basically the foundation for the methods and other guidance in the cost sharing regulations issued in the U.S. in 2009, finalized in 2011. Uh, and the updated OECD guidelines now also include uh, references to the realistic alternatives principle. Uh, and of course, importantly, the realistic alternatives principle was explicitly added to the statute um, in the U.S., added to Section 42 of the Internal Revenue Code in 2017. So that's an explicit endorsement by Congress. So I think understanding what that principle means and how it applies in specific fact patterns will become increasingly important in transfer pricing analyses. Yes, I've always found it a bit curious that the realistic alternatives principle and the aggregation principle were both added to the code long after these concepts had been sort of embedded in the 482 regulations. But sticking with controversy, what transfer pricing controversy issues do you see coming down the road that will have a lasting impact on transfer pricing? Um, one area where I foresee a lot of potential strain in the system, uh, in bilateral and multilateral cases in particular, is the application of the new OECD transfer pricing guidelines uh, developed as part of the BEPS project. The new guidance introduced these brand new concepts, uh, DEMPI uh, was one of them, and new risk control standards. And it's really unclear how these new standards will be applied uh, in practice in various countries. Uh, it's unclear both how countries will determine whether a particular standard has been met uh, under the facts of a, of a specific case, and also what is the consequence if it's determined that, say, a dumpy standard or a risk control requirement is not met. Can you give me an example? Oh, yeah. I mean... Um, for example, if um, a, an affiliate is determined to be performing the important DEMPI functions uh, related to uh, an income-producing intangible asset, uh, will that result in just a larger allocation of service income to the affiliate performing the DEMPI functions, or will that affiliate be considered the owner of the relevant intangible property? So, I mean, that, that just one of, one of many examples. I think one thing is clear, different countries will not have the same view of what these standards mean. 
and how they will be applied in practice. Um, we've already seen fundamental disagreements arise on the interpretation of the OECD guidelines in some cases between competent authorities in countries that otherwise have a very good competent authority relationship. So I think it'll take some time before sort of these issues are, are worked out uh, and the strains in the system are uh, worked out on these kinds of issues. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? That even though countries have agreement as to the actual text of the applicable rules, it doesn't necessarily mean they're gonna be interpreted the same manner across jurisdictions. Outside of the controversy space, what do you see as key transfer pricing issues that clients need to pay attention to, both from a U.S. and a global perspective? Well, I mentioned earlier um, the introduction of profitability benchmarks uh, as a major development in the evolution of transfer pricing. I actually think we're now seeing a similar development with the growing emphasis on the application of valuation principles, essentially discounted cash flow approaches to evaluate transfer pricing issues. So, I mean, example, the U.S. cost sharing regulations and the OECD guidelines both now endorse application of discounted cash flow approaches or income method approaches in many circumstances. Uh, and this is underpinned by the realistic alternatives principle that I mentioned before. So I think transfer pricing analysts will, will need to become as adept at analyzing discount rates as they are now at analyzing you know, profitability benchmarks. Um, but also, I think the movement of the international community towards adopting Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, so fundamentally altering some existing standards of international taxation, will require many companies to reevaluate their global operating models uh, and to align them to these you know, new paradigms. And transfer pricing structures will have to be part of this evaluation. You know, businesses always need to operate in the way that makes the most business sense. But the challenge for company tax departments will be to ensure that the business operations are both tax efficient and compliant with the applicable laws. And these are a moving target right now. So it's, uh, uh, it's interesting times. I think it's safe to say that perhaps the one constant in our practice is that it's never constant. Rules of the game seem to be constantly changing. And I think they'll continue to do so. And that's what makes it uh, interesting and, it, and fun. To, uh, it's a <laughs> constant challenge in the transfer pricing field. I couldn't agree more. Well, Greg, thank you again for taking the time to have this discussion. I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. We'll be back in August with our next episode of TP Talks. Until then, have a wonderful day. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.